Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Francesca Toey and it's Wednesday, November the 2nd. In this week's podcast, we're discussing a new Lancet series entitled Health, Equity and Women's Cancers. And I'm delighted to be joined by the lead author of the three-part series on the line from Geneva. Welcome, Dr. Afira Ginsberg. Please, can you tell us your title and affiliation, please? I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto. And for the past year, I've been a medical officer at the World Health Organization here in Geneva. How did the series come about and what was the need to focus on women's cancers? Well, I'm a medical oncologist originally from Canada and I've been working with colleagues mostly in South and East Asia since about 2004, collaborating on research in breast cancer and also at the request of a few countries, advising on best practices for treatment and early detection. But it was only when I went to the rural areas, particularly in Bangladesh, where I saw firsthand how social inequality and gender inequity really do impact on a woman's choice and ability to seek care and ultimately on her access to care. So this really impacted on survival, at least from breast cancer. So I reached out to others doing similar work. There's many people throughout the world and many are co-authors on this series from regions where breast cancer is usually diagnosed at a late stage and cervical screening programs are entirely absent. And we got together and felt something really has to be done to address this as an unmet challenge in global health. And over the course of time, I met like-minded individuals and we decided really to see if we could provide one series of articles that can summarize what the needs are and uh, provide recommendations. And that developed into the series. This series focuses on breast and cervical cancers. Why did you choose these two? It's a very good question because 2.7 million women each year develop breast or a gynecological cancer, not just cervical cancer, but also uterine and ovarian, and a million women will die of these cancers. But we featured breast and cervical cancer in particular because the disparities are the most striking. Every minute a woman dies of breast cancer and every two minutes a woman dies of cervical cancer. And the odds are that most of these women were living in a lower middle income country. In the case of cervical cancer, almost 85% of women who develop the disease and 87% of women who die of invasive cervical cancer are living in a lower middle income country. So the inequities are very, very stark. And we have public health interventions that we know can really make an impact on both these cancers. If we think about access to early detection for breast cancer, even just through better education and providing a place for women to go to receive timely, effective, and affordable care, as a new document by the World Health Organization will highlight, and if we can achieve population level of cervical screening and treatment of precancerous lesions, as well as HPV vaccination, and these are considered very cost-effective interventions, we can make a huge impact globally to close this so-called cancer divide for women. So we thought it was important to feature these two cancers. One other thing I'll mention is that breast cancer is the number one cancer in women in most countries of the world. And we're calling it a Trojan horse in the series because it's our entry point that can show what can be achieved through building capacity for diagnosis, effective early treatment, etc. And this can help pave the way for these kinds of health system improvements to impact on all cancers in women, but also in men and children. In fact, the UN agencies have come together for a new global joint program specifically brought together to assist all the individuals, member states, civil society, and academicians who've already been doing great work in the field to impact on cervical cancer. And we're aiming to provide technical assistance and, of course, resource mobilization to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health issue. 
This is actually the vision of that program and the words of the UN Secretary General in his call to action on this year's World Cancer Day. So you talk about the disparities between those living in low-income countries and high-income countries. And one of the strategies you propose to reduce this divide is with the HPV vaccination against cervical cancer. Do you think that this should only go to girls or should go to boys as well? We don't specifically address the role of HPV vaccination for boys in any detail in this series because it's still an area of development. But certainly it is safe and effective for boys and some countries are already recommending this. There's two good reasons to vaccinate boys as well. One is to protect men from HPV-related cancers. As many may know, many may not know, that HPV and its oncogenic or cancer-causing subtypes cause a variety of cancers, not just cervical cancer. And there's currently an emerging epidemic of head and neck cancer related to HPV. Usually we think of the risk factors being uh, tobacco and alcohol. But HPV-related head and neck cancer is really on the rise, particularly in North America and Western Europe. And we expect to see similar trends elsewhere. So protecting men is one. And the other is to achieve herd immunity, whereby you can have the population protected when coverage is high enough. Now, what that coverage level is, is being worked out for boys and girls and ultimately will also lower a man's risk of HPV-related cancer. But what do we have for evidence so far are predominantly models. And there's been some really good recent work looking at, you know, combination. If you achieve 20% population coverage for girls and 20% for boys, is that better? Can you achieve herd immunity quicker than if you just go for 70 or 80% coverage for girls? This remains to be determined. And because HPV vaccines are still sadly very expensive, notwithstanding Gavi's effort to really provide lower cost vaccines for low income countries, from a public health standpoint, so far the best bang for our vaccines to be targeting girls predominantly. But I would say stay tuned. So monetary investment is obviously a large problem in resource-limited areas, and you've mentioned the UN global joint agencies are going to be helping provide resources. Where else could this funding come from? This is perhaps the most important question for all of us and something we really focus on in the third paper in our series. I would say that as a global community, we have to come together, as we've done with the Millennium Development Goals and now with the Sustainable Development Goals, And in fact, when you look at the health-related sustainable development goal number three, the target being to achieve a third reduction in premature mortality, including from non-communicable diseases by 2030, this is aligned with the goal. But poor countries really can't be expected to tackle this entirely on their own. So some of the aspects of cancer care, particularly radiotherapy, for example, does require high vertical investments. And we believe the best approach really is to begin with universal health coverage. The initial packages of services should include at least these two cancers and perhaps also childhood cancer, which is thankfully rare, but there's tremendous inequities in this situation as well. You can make a huge impact on child survival by providing access to medicine and infrastructure to achieve this. And Mexico has made this case extremely well, and we highlight this in this series. We also talk about the essential packages of cancer services, which are described in the cancer volume, which is new, as part of the Disease Control Priorities 3, or DCP3. There's also uh, revisions coming soon to the WHO NCD Action Plan, where we look at the costing of these services. So if you take the stance from the Commission on Investing in Health 
and the concept of progressive universalism as the model to go by. We think that middle-income countries, upper-middle-income countries in particular, should be able to increase their domestic expenditures for health, you know, measured as a percentage of GDP. But the poorer countries will require a combination of domestic and international resources. So bottom line is we have to make the investment case to help countries realize that these really are wise investments, great returns. Women are dying in the prime of life. As we described in the paper, the median age of breast and cervical cancer in most countries is, particularly breast cancer, is much lower than it is in high-income countries by virtue of the population structure. But we're talking about the loss of women to their families and to the workforce, and many families are driven into financial catastrophe due to out-of-pocket expenditures. So how do we make the future benefit today's political priority? That is something we really need to address. And lastly, I'd say we need to expand the way that we think about development assistance for health and factor in cancer and, for that matter, all NCDs into women's health along the life course. You know, women's health is more than just maternal health, and this is really a rights issue. And I'm glad to see the new global strategy for every woman, every child is really taking this approach. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ginsberg. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me. I want to say a special thank you to The Lancet for helping us draw attention to this issue.